This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. I am super excited to be on with JP again. We have a special guest today, a guy I've known for a long time from my old days in uh, sunny California, Brian Gantworker. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you having me. So I'm so jealous because for so many years, Santa Monica was to me like the ideal city to live in. You know, you had Venice Beach with the bodybuilders. It's like, you know, uh, it, it's just like an idyllic part of, of Los Angeles and part of Americana. And um, we wanted to talk a little bit of it today about what most people are engaged in, which is the typical, I don't want to call it private practice, but the practice in neurosurgery. And LA is such a competitive environment. It's, it's such a fast moving, fast paced place as I remember it. And so we wanted to have you on. So welcome to the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Yeah, no problem. So why don't you just kick us off by um, starting with an introduction of, of where you are, where you trained, uh, who your mentors are, that kind of thing. All right. So cool. We'll take it back a minute. Um, so I was talking to uh, Dr. Colkin uh, before uh, I did my medical school at Rush, actually where he is right now training. And I graduated there in 01. And then I went over to Case Western in Ohio, uh, where uh, Nick Bambakidis was my uh, chief resident for a little bit. Um, and I trained under Bob Ratchison and uh, Warren Selman after that. And then I went over to Barrow, where I did a spine fellowship under Volker Sontag um, and Curtis Dickman and Nick Theodore at the time. Um, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, uh, graduating in, in 09, it was a really bad time to look for a job. Um, you know, it was the sort of the market crash and houses were underwater. I still remember, you know, out in Paradise Valley, which is like the really nice area of Phoenix, uh, Scottsdale area and tons of houses were in foreclosure. So not a lot of people were hiring and, and I wanted to come out to sort of other Chicago and my wife is originally from California. My, my mentors have really been people who sort of, um, I guess, imbued me a, a bit of an independent streak. You know, one guy who you may not hear of is a guy named uh, Ben Columbi, who's recently passed away. And he's one of the uh, neurosurgeons that sort of mentored me and my co-residents. Um, he was sort of an old school, you know, Vietnam veteran type, kind of a little crusty, but he was so incredibly dedicated to patient care. And he sort of had like an independent streak to himself where he just kind of did things you know, his own way, and, and but but in a very safe way. And he always questioned when everybody was sort of doing the same darn thing. He sort of kept it very simple and just used common sense. And um, the same thing with his partner, Matt Likovic, who was actually at our county hospital. And they were partners at one point and sort of uh, were still working together, but sort of in the department in separate areas. Those were kind of really, you know, my mentors. Um, and Dr. Selman, of course, you know, he really taught me how to you know, I know it's an anathema to some people, but, you know, really, you know, running a medical practice independently is really about a lot about customer and patient service. So it's about doing a good job, but also having the patient have a good experience because that how you, that's how you kind of, you know, differentiate yourself. Um, and lastly, I would probably say uh, the two people that sort of got me through were um, obviously uh, Dr. Sontag, who was great, Dr. Theodore, who I still talk to, and I'm sure you know uh, Nick real well. He's been continuing to be a mentor to me, and I would probably say the final person would be Dr. Robert Spetzler. Um, now, the, obviously, you don't want to think about as like a spine guy. What the what are you doing talking to a cranial guy? Um, but he has been still like a guy I sort of talk to, reach out to, um, and run things by, and and just ask him questions. So they've all been you know very formative to me, and and obviously I've got my family members who've been mentors to me as well. 
but I would say professionally, those are, those are the people that really have mentored me over my years. Now that is just a, obviously a who's who of neurosurgery. And it's, you know, listening to you recount that I was fascinated to hear you kind of self-describe as being drawn to people that taught you to be individual, defend for yourself, think for yourself, because as Dr. Wang said, the, the topic we wanted to discuss today was private practice neurosurgery. Um, the past few weeks, a couple of months, we've been talking about more of the business or economic side of neurosurgery and medicine in the United States. And I thought who better to come on and, and maybe not pitch, but at least describe the experience of a truly private practice neurosurgeon in 2023. And for yeah. our listeners, Dr. Gantworker, if you could, maybe just on a very simple level, we have a lot of residents and medical students listening, break mm -hmm. down what it really means to be in your kind of private practice. Because most people today, when we're getting toward the end of training and thinking about going private versus academics, when we say private practice, we're mostly talking about hospital employed community practice now. And that's not quite um, what your practice is like. So maybe describe what your practice is like at the Cranial Spinal Institute there. Um, it's interesting because I'm probably going to say some heretical things and uh, <laughs> we look forward to the uh, to the backlash, as they say. Um, you know, I, I would say it starts with um, really an idea and, and a desire to um, sort of self-mentor. You know, you kind of transition out of being mentored by other people and just sort of you want to become the surgeon that you want to be. And it starts with that idea and that in your mind, you can think of that being outside of an institution uh, or a hospital employed practice. Um, I've always kind of looked at employed positions and there's nothing wrong with being employed. Believe me, it's very safe. Trust me. There are moments I'm sure Mike can talk with me, you know, can, can sympathize me where a Kaiser job sounds awfully good. Um, but you know, there's a certain safety uh, there. And for some people, that's really what they want. They want sort of a steady paycheck. They want safety. They want reliability. But ultimately, you know, I kind of look at a lot of things that are being forced onto neurosurgeons now with a very jaundiced eye. Yeah, and it sort of starts with, you know, these benchmarks that they're setting that don't really do anything. Like, did you put SCDs on your patient? Did you give them antibiotics in 30 minutes? Well, of course, yes to both. But a lot of the other stuff they sort of have pushed onto us, we really don't have any data that that sort of influences patient care. And it just seems like a lot of that has been piled on and piled on and piled on. Mm. Um, and, you know, when you're outside of a hospital system and you're kind of, quote unquote, a guest, you still have to follow, you know, follow the rules and regs. And, and obviously you should stick to an ethical, moral practice. But at the same time, you sort of want to be able to really to do the cases that you want to do. And that's sort of one of the drivers, right? Um, my grandfather was an independent um, insurance salesman in Chicago where I grew up. And he worked for Mutual of Omaha. He won the President's Award. In fact, I'm looking at his portrait right now on my office wall. You know, he had um, Marlon Perkins used to do Wild Kingdom, left a message on his voicemail. I mean, just for fun. So he had like the pinnacle of, of you know, employment essentially. And then he sort of struck out on his own. And really, he kind of got gave me the, the virus, so to speak, to sort of want to be out on my own and really operate things and be able to build my own brand. So that's probably the second thing is the desire to sort of build your own brand. You know, I'm going to sell Dr. Wang, I'm going to sell Dr. Colquhoun, or I'm going to sell Dr. Deutsch or Dr. Gantworker. Like that's who I want. That's how I want to present myself. That's how I want to be out there. So that's been part of it too. You know, especially when you, we sort of like, you know what you're good at. You kind of got to the realization, the point of your career where you know what you're capable and what your strengths and weaknesses are, and you want to put out your strengths. And the real way to do that is to do cases that you know you're going to do well at, 
and that you have excellent uh, experience in and, and confidence and you know you'll do the best for your patients. You know, for instance, I really don't do brain tumors anymore. I sort of sign those off or I refer them to other physicians. I mean, not that I'm bad at them, it's just it's not really my thing. And I didn't want it to be that to really do those much anymore. And so I sort of concentrate on things I'm concentrating on now. Uh, and it's been really, really good. Um, so those are basically the two things that sort of got to sort of get in your brain to to push you to that. Um, I, I think that's uh, I think that's something important to really look at yourself. And you have to do a lot of self-analysis. Is this something you really want to jump into? Because there are, you know, financially uncertain times, especially when you're striking out on your own or just maybe joining a smaller private practice. You know, it's so funny. Mar- Mutual of Omaha, Wild World of Animals, and Marlon Parkin- Perkins. We grew up with him. Sunday nights watching that. So you're bringing back a lot of memories. Yep. Um, yep. And, you know, I, it, it is interesting when we think about that time period, that was the 1970s, mm-hmm. how uh, most surgeons were essentially in what we would call private practice, right? Mm-hmm. And we just had faculty meeting last night. I got to tell you, uh, here in University of Miami, you know, we have a wonderful chairman, Alan Levy. This is, I have the best job in the world, but people always ask this question, like, you know, I'm, I'm striking out. What do I do? I'm, I'm about to not strike out. I'm about to strike out on my own. And what am I going to do? And, and if I go work at a university, what's the contract going to look like? And I've said this, I think three times before in the podcast, like, you know, the, the advice, if the advice is get a lawyer to look at your contract, I'm like, that's a bunch of BS because at a university, they're going to give you one page and then you're going to sign something that says you're going to adhere to a faculty manual and that manual is 50,000 pages long and they change it every day. And then those are the rules and the rules are changing every day. Yep. And then if you don't adhere to them, you're in violation anyway. Yes. So I know how horrible it is to have this situation where it's like, okay, well, you can't do this. You can't do that. You did this wrong. So I talk to someone like you, Brian, I'm like, oh my God, you're living in paradise. But then I know there's another side to it, right? Like yep. what are the pitfalls? Why is it that people don't want to do private practice anymore? What what is the draw away from it? Because I really, really want to believe that's the right way to do things if you're not in a university. You know? it, it The issue is, um, you know, financial uncertainty is a never ending specter at your door. And you have to like, you know, for instance, in California, we had something called um, AB 72. And since the 1970s, since I was about one year old, we had malpractice reform, we had tort reform statewide. And a guy came in who ran a very large uh, sort of private injury firm, and he threatened essentially the California Medical Association, basically everybody, uh, and they blew essentially blew up our tort reform, um, essentially just destroyed it. And I think something similar happened in uh, Colorado. Um, so th- you don't know how much malpractice is going to cost you every year. So that's a real, a newer uncertainty, but one of the examples. And the other uncertainty is how much is rent going to cost you? How much are your fixed costs? So I think in answer to your question is what, what draws people away from private practice is really financial uncertainty. And um, there are different ways you can end up in private practice. There's something called an MSO, which is a management service organization. And that's essentially where probably the best of both worlds, where you have a hospital or a large system supporting you, but you kind of uh, eat what you kill, so to speak, and they take care of your malpractice and your rent and your your uh, employees. Unfortunately, those are not real common anymore, and they're a bit of a unicorn, so it's very hard to, to score those. And if you do, that might be a way 
to get into private practice. The other way to get in private practice is to be, you know, have what's called a recruitment agreement where you're guaranteed X number of dollars for two years. But the problem is once the rug gets pulled out, it goes back to eat what you kill or RVUs and RVU based, you know, that's problematic too, because you get a certain dollar value per RVU. So if you're making, you know, 32 or $45 per RVU, that's way below your market value. And I'm familiar with certain orthopedic surgeons out here who are making almost $88 per RVU hour, which is a really good deal. So unfortunately, I would probably say you should have a lawyer look at your contract if you're outside of university. And you're absolutely right. My brother, he's a pediatric ear, nose, and throat doctor out in New York, and he had a very short, very short contract. I'm like, what is this? It's like, you going to get a lawyer? He's like, no, there's not much I can do about it. It's like a university job. So it's pretty much the deal, right? So you get, sign your life away here, and then we're, we're you know, uh, the rules are subject to change, so to speak. Um, but I think it's financial uncertainty, and you sort of have to have a little bit of willingness to um, learn about your revenue cycles. And then, of course, like picking up call, you know, getting like a, a daily stipend for call will kind of help you bridge the gap. But there's no guarantees, right? I mean, when COVID hit, I mean, my God, um, I had a moment uh, and, you know, I had to actually take a pay cut in order to keep my people employed. So that in a significant pay cut, not just a small, like a couple grand uh, a year, this was a huge, uh, basically tightening of the belt, so to speak. And it got really dicey, you know? Um, so it you have to be prepared to really ride the roller coaster. And I hate roller coasters, but business can be a major, major roller coaster. Well, you know, I, I do want to underscore a couple points that uh, the two of you just made. It, for one thing, I think that this trend we're seeing with younger neurosurgeons, people coming out of training, going more toward uh, not just employed positions versus owning a practice, but toward academia has been borne out. It's, it's interview season right now. And every mm -hmm. year we put up the slide showing where graduates from Russia have gone. And there's a clear trend over the past decade where more and more people are going into academia. Uh, there was even a paper out a couple of years ago, um, Nitin Agarwal at Pittsburgh now, who was on the podcast, was a senior author. And they showed convincingly that there's a significant difference in age between private employed and uh, academic employed neurosurgeons, which they concluded could mean more people are going into academia. I thought that was interesting. Um, but there also might be, with, with hearing you talk about some of this financial uncertainty, um, it might be that some of the people in my generation, I'll, I'll out myself, might just be more risk averse than yeah. generations before us. You know, we, we don't like that feeling of uncertainty. And um, one of the ways that I would guess, Dr. Gantworker, you feel more secure in your position now is, as Dr. Wang said with his uh, boss, Dr. Levy, you have a great boss. And we, we were talking about this before we started recording. Right? I My wife would disagree with you vehemently, but that's okay. Well, well that's exactly, I, I think this is a fascinating angle to your practice structure and honestly, just your life. So for our listeners, you know, tell them who is your boss? How did that come to be? And, and what's it like both at work and to the extent you want to talk about it at home? Yeah. So it's, uh, we actually run uh, sort of a mom and pop neurosurgical practice. Um, yeah, you don't that every day. yeah, no, it's really fun. Um, there's moments, you know, my wife is, uh, my PM, my practice manager, um, and she makes a, a lot of business decisions and she used to run an, uh, an orthodontic practice here in Santa Monica, not far away, right next to the UCLA hospital actually. And she dealt with a lot of, you know, very high end clients and, and she sort of got a feel for the neighborhood, so to speak. And, 
when I was thinking about starting the practice, I sort of said, Hey, uh, do you want to do this? And she said, yeah, I'm game. Um, so, and that was like 13 years ago. Um, so we've been doing it now and, and there are moments you have to, you do have to compartmentalize if you work with your spouse. Um, you kind of have to say, okay, we're not gonna talk about work tonight. Or we say, okay, got to do a quick work break thing over dinner, five minutes, and then it's over. Um, but it's really good because we can, we can sort of bounce ideas off each other, you know, from business decisions to different direct, like radical, radical changes you're going to make hiring decisions. And there's a lot more sort of synchronicity when you can kind of, uh, be with when you're with somebody who you love, obviously who your partner's with, and you can sort of say, okay, well, yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. You know, you're, you're kind of of the same mind and that's a little bit like getting a really good partner that you have. And, uh, it's very unusual. I know, like I, I'm the first to admit we have kind of a weird setup, but it works. Um, and you just have to be careful, you know, not to over, you know, especially when you're really like nervous and you're first starting out and you're, you're biting your nails and you're just so freaked out and scared. It's hard not to drive each other crazy, you know? Um, especially cause you're both feeling the same anxiety, the same, you know, threat of failure, the same threat of, well, what do I do now? But, but I would say, you know, if you have the the desire to sort of do something on your own and you feel like you can do it better than say someone who'll bring you in and sort of force you to do things that you really don't want to do. And I'm not just talking about taking call. You know, we all take call. It's painful. But I'm just talking about like if you like, if they're asking you like clip aneurysms and you're a spine surgeon like Mike is, you know, you're not going to want to clip aneurysms. And sometimes in private practice, they're going to shove stuff in front of you that you're like, I do not feel comfortable with this. And re- you're really kind of discouraged from saying no. And I think it was born out of that too. Like, I'm just really concerned. Like, I I can't clip a basilar tip aneurysm. What if I'm in somewhere out far-flung Montana or Idaho, and I don't have somebody out there who can take this case for me? And I don't have an interventional radiologist, and I'm all this poor patient has. So I did not want to end up in a situation like that because I certainly wouldn't want, want my mom or dad in the hands of somebody who didn't like do a whole bunch of these or at least felt like he or she can 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 manage this and take care of problems should they arise. So it's kind of a complex menagerie of decision-making processes, but that kind of, you know, going off of my own was sort of that whole kind of all satisfied, all those little things that I was hoping to accomplish, you know? So, uh, but, but working with your spouse is hard. It's fun also, but there's also this sort of like, she has a natural sort of desire for everything to work, right? So we're here, we want to see everything go forward and she can understand what I'm going through. And she knows she's also really plugged into our staff. And says, like, what do they need? Okay, they need a new computer. They need a new scanner. We need a different process for checking in patients and checking out of patients. We got to drop this insurance. We got to sign on with this insurance. There's a sort of a real-time, very quick, nimble way you can make changes. And that's been to our advantage other than submitting something and waiting six weeks and nothing happens. Yeah, you know, I would personally, for my curiosity and the way my brain works, I could drill into that aspect of your work and life all day because that is just infinitely curious to me and how the interactions are with your partners and the other staff members and things. But I think for our listeners, what might be more beneficial is I, I'd like to ask you more about not your situation where you have a manager that you can truly trust. And I mean, we it, it's interesting to hear how you deliberately set that up for yourself. In medicine, we say prevention is better than cure. In the Catholic act of contrition, after you ask forgiveness for sins, then you say, and please help me avoid the near occasion of sin. And that's <laughs> extraordinarily wise that you set yourself up to avoid someone that would put you in those positions, or at least to have someone that you know you can say directly, listen, 
this isn't right. I shouldn't do that. I can do this. I can't do that. But that's your situation, at least from talking to your friends, your colleagues who are also in the private practice world, the physician-owned world. Can you give any advice to uh, young surgeons who are either going that direction or may already find themselves in a situation where they are being asked to do things uh, by a practice manager that maybe they aren't comfortable with about how they can navigate those waters? How can they uh, speak to these people that are putatively their, their boss and try to keep themselves and their patients safe while still satisfying the needs of the practice? Um, you know, I, I had a, a, a case come in um, of a patient with a thalamic uh, AVM, and I was sort of being asked to address this problem. Uh, it was thankfully a non-emergent thing. The AVM was enormous. And um, I uh, I was being told by other people in the room that it was an inoperable and that it needed to be radiated. And I told them that I wasn't sure that was the right thing for the patient. Uh, it was actually, it was, I'm sorry, it was a caver cavernous malformation or something, some sort of vascular malformation that wasn't, maybe radiation was not the best idea. Um, and I said, well, um, you know, if this were my kid or my brother, I'd want someone else to look at this. And I think that we need to call a person. So I ended up calling Dr. Spetzler. And I sent him some pictures encrypted, obviously, and, you know, HIPAA and all that. And he said, yeah, we would do this, this, and this. And I went back to the group and said, well, Dr. Spetzler thinks this is operable, and I think it would be a good idea for this patient to go to go see him. So I sort of stepped in in that I, I disagreed with the sort of general feeling in the room. And I think the person, whoever he or she is, when you're in a situation where you're being pressured to do stuff you don't feel comfortable with, then you just have to say no. It's like, this is not the right treatment for the patient. It's even better if you have a colleague who you can send the patient to. Um, you know, for instance, um, I had a, uh, a patient with a really bad, nasty looking cordoma, and I don't do really big pelvic osteotomies and things like that. And thankfully, the patient ended up at one of our academic centers, which I just, you know, even though uh, she was a, uh, the wife of one of my patients and I'm sort of like their family neurosurgeon, I didn't really think, you know, hey, this is probably something that's better to go somewhere else. I talked to, I actually ran into Dr. Gokoslin at the um, San Diego uh, joint section meeting a couple of years ago, a few years ago. And I said, hey, I have this case. He's like, what do you think? He's like, ooh, that looks rough. I said, okay. <laughs> so, I, so I said, all right, well, and, you know, even though I, I wanted to, I myself was pressuring myself and I was like, you know, it's probably not a good idea. And the patient ended up going over to, I think UCLA or something. And, uh, you know, these are situations where you have to just do that gut check. Like, does this make sense to do this? And even though you're being pressured, you really have to be strong and push back. Because, you know, I don't know how you guys feel about, you know, family members, but, you know, if I always picture, like, if this were my mom or dad, what would I, who would I want to do this or where would I want it done? And not just, hey, I can, you know, I can do this or I've done a couple of these, but if you really had a serious problem, like if I had a patient at very bad, like pelvic osteo or had a complete sacral dissolution from osteomyelitis or a tumor, I would not touch that patient. That patient needs to go somewhere else. And you just really have to resist the, especially if you get pressured to keep a patient, you have to not be afraid to say, look, this person, this man, this woman, this person has to go somewhere else because it's the best thing for them. And if they want to override you, then it's it's really on whoever the administrator who's making those decisions. And sometimes you'll have to deal with insurances that absolutely refuse you to transfer a patient. I had a patient once that had a very bad infection. I did surgery and the infection came back because they didn't take the antibiotics. 
And it was in a, a retro peritoneal uh, place where I put a cage. The cage was basically floating. And I said, look, you need to send this patient to an academic center where you, they can get a full retro peritoneal thing, not just next lift type thing. And they need a complex reconstruction because it was very close to the TL junction. And I don't feel good or comfortable taking down the, the diaphragm in private practice. I know some people do. I really generally don't, or I have a, usually have an assistant with someone who does a lot of that kind of thing. But this was clearly outside of my uh, comfort zone. And I felt like if this was my dad, there's no way in heck I'd want to me be doing this case. So I just, I push back. I just, I don't feel like it's anyone's choice, but the surgeon who's being, you know, given that case to make the choice, you know, even if somebody insists, I mean, obviously you want to be able to help the patient do what they want. But if you have a case where you're like, well, I'm not so sure I should be doing this, you have to be able to be the one to speak up and say, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Administrator, I'm not, I can't do this case. I'm not comfortable. And I think the patient will not do well in in this situation. They need to go to Dr. So-and-so. Yeah. You know, uh, Brian, that's such an important message because those type of scenarios emerge more often than I think most people realize. And I'm sure for those in practice now who, even for employees, right, they, they run into this dilemma because who who is the master that you serve, right? And that that is a spirit, I think, in neurosurgery that we don't want to lose that so many other specialties have gone that way. And so with, with that in mind, I want to ask you a question about how you gain knowledge. Obviously, you've been successful in Santa Monica, and that is a tough place. Uh, so many surgeons, so many great surgeons, so many innovative folks, and the patients are difficult, and the insurance rates are not ideal, right? It's not like you're in New York City. Right. So how do you get knowledge? Like when, when you say, well, like I want to I wanna be involved in investment uh, to, to buy a building or uh, an office or maybe an MRI center, and I need <laughs> funding for this, or I, I want to find wow. out how to- You must think I'm doing great, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, you know, for example- Steve. How do I? How Where's do I, my building? <laughs> how would I shop for the right malpractice insurance, and what are the benefits yeah. of this type of policy versus another? And and I right. know you can't go into all these different realms, or how do I deal with insurance denials? Like how do you yeah. get smart? Because you know, like in a university, we sit around, we commiserate, and and we're not that knowledgeable. But at least there's a collective um, an antenna up, an affective part where everybody's like, oh, I heard about this, or I heard about that. Yeah, and there's a university. But but for you guys, how do you get information? It's it's interesting. You know, sometimes people look at me like I have a couple of heads, and and maybe I do. I don't know. Um, it, it, when they, I tell them what I do and how we run the business, but I would say you generally have to keep your ear to the ground. Um, and a lot of it's sort of like you are sort of cast off in a certain direction once you start your practice. Like I was with another uh, sort of smaller neurosurgical practice to start with, and. Um, like for instance, like my malpractice carrier, I kept the same one just to avoid having to play, pay the tail, the malpractice tail, which is the money you have to pay to the company, you know, to kind of cover you uh, after you quit the practice or move the practice out of the practice. So I really didn't have to pay much of a tail, uh, cause I kept the same, you know, insurance company. Um, eventually, you know, I shopped around and, and you do have to shop around for everything. And that's really what it comes down to. You have to be willing to make the phone calls to, to like, for instance, like you have to get something called EPLI insurance, which sort of like a not quite errors and emissions. It's all of these different kind of insurance policies you have to have when you have your own practice, like literally business insurance, and uh, it's essentially like liability. You have to literally get on the phone, talk, call around, and find what the best rate is and who a, a reputable uh, carrier is. And this is it's it does absorb a lot of time, and you sort of get a lot of knowledge from making mistakes in terms of business, at least. 
Um, and you sort of like, well, that didn't work or that cost me a lot of money. And sometimes the, co- the, the mistakes you'll make, like with finding an internet marketer, I can't tell you how much, how many thousands of dollars I've wasted on SEO and internet marketing when I finally f- found a company that has a reasonably, uh, a reasonable rate, but that took me almost eight years of like false starts, bad, you know, advertising, just really awful, um, customer service too, and just not doing what I wanted them to do. So there is a lot of trial and error. You have to be willing to, to, you know, if you're very error adverse when it comes to business, it's, it's, it's rough. Now, in terms of making investments, I don't, unfortunately, I don't own any, uh, I'm actually glad I don't own any commercial real estate. It's kind of a rough market right now. And it's about, you know, it's $6 a square foot to get an office in Beverly Hills right now. So it's extremely expensive. Um, but, uh, to own a building is good, but a lot of physicians really don't own that kind of thing anymore. They do invest in and get, you know, with a surgery center and really you got to know your partners there. You have to understand what kind of case mix they're doing, the payer contracts. Um, and sort of, do you have somebody who has a reputation for, for sort of, uh, you know, being the proverbial scorpion, scorpion on the back of the frog's, uh, back while you're crossing the river. So you have to be careful with those kind of folks because they really can't sort of change. It's just who they are. So you have to be able to look at your partners and do they have a good track record of making good investments on things? And um, that's that's ins- insanely hard. What I've concentrated more on is sort of looking at medical tech. Um, I have a friend who um, is doing a very cool project with uh, measuring the oximetry of the unborn baby. Uh, so it's fetal oximetry, essentially, like non-invasive, like a pulse ox for babies. And he's an old friend from medical school. We've known each other for over my God, uh, 24 years now. And, you know, he's sort of like, he's sort of in and out of the medical field. He's kind of straddles both like the uh, startup world as well as the, he still practices anesthesiology. And, um, you know, I, I've known him for, God, almost half of my life. So we sort of invested in his thing and hopefully it'll work itself out. And, uh, you know, make sure your investment partners are trustworthy. My investment partner is my brother. Um, and obviously we run stuff by, by the boss and make sure my wife ma- thinks it makes sense. But I, I think you, you really have to really invest in one particular capital and that's yourself. And I think the way you get information is from going to meetings, becoming colleagues with people like me meeting you years ago, uh, talking to people, getting to know people in the area and see what works for them. And you, you sort of have to be open to discussing things and, you may have to divulge some things that you think are, you know, trade secrets or whatever, and just to sort of understand where each other's at. I mean, where we are is very geographical, right? I mean, you got your thing down in South, the Southeast there in, in Florida. I'm sure, uh, JC, you'll have your thing in Chicago. Uh, I've got my thing out here in LA, but there's a lot of stuff that sort of is the same no matter where you go and what you do. You have the same challenges, right? How do I get this surgery approved? How do I you pay for this and how do I pay for that? And how do I move myself forward academically? Or do I want to sort of more be more of a workhorse and just do a lot of cases and get really good? Um, so you have to have a pretty open mind to what it is you want to learn. And then you have to seek out people who you think can can help you with those things and and tap your contacts. You know, I've I always kind of joke, you know, where I'm from, we always say, uh, I know a guy, you know, I know a guy who does this. I know a guy, not just guy, obviously, but everybody. And, you know, if a patient says to me, hey, uh, my brother has a brain tumor in New York, and I say, okay, well, let me call up this person. I'll call up somebody. And my friend's got a problem with his spine, you know, in New York. And so I, I call up Roger Hartle and, you know, just sort of reach out to people and, you know, use your context to also plumb for information and, and to, to understand, like, how are they tackling different problems, you know? 
Um, and I think that's a good thing to do. That's how you sort of keep your antenna. But a lot of it's also, unfortunately, a lot of trial and error and sort of like you make a business decision. I mean, I, I don't have an MBA. I should just stress that. You know, I kind of tease Dr. Muminani at UCSF. You know, he's Mr. MBA now. He's the smart guy. But uh, I, I don't have an MBA. I've sort of learned on the fly. Um, and that's cool too. But, you know, it, it does require a lot of um, tolerance for uncertainty and really kind of realizing sometimes you're not doing something um, that's going to be beneficial for your business and you kind of have to hit a reset and try again. So let me let me give you just a minute to make a plug for what you do, which is advocacy, I think currently with NAS, right? Um, and why surgeons need to be more involved in advocating for our patients yeah. and for ourselves. Well, NAS advocacy has kind of hit the reset button, speaking of which. So I'm not actively involved uh, with NAS, although maybe hopefully it'll start up again. But I work really um, a lot in terms of the neurosurgery pack. Um, I'm a member at large on the neurosurgery pack. I'm also heavily involved in our state uh, neurosurgical society, CANS. Um, and I'm also, I'm a very big mouth during the Council of State Neurosurgical Society meetings, the CSNS. And I'm also involved in the California Medical Association. I'm kind of a loud mouth there as well. And I'm the guy in the room that sort of stands up and says, well, I don't think that's a good idea. And here's why. I, I think advocacy comes, is not natural, but I think if you are somebody who doesn't, you know, really think the status quo is, is okay. Uh, and one of Dr. Spetzler's quotes kind of comes to me, he's like, what's the denominator, right? So he would look at a paper and like, if everything is wonderful, we did great. The patients that did this to, yeah, but what's the actual denominator? How many real patients did you do this to? And what's your real success rate? So just because someone's pitching something to you doesn't mean you should necessarily, you know, take it at face value. And so when I'm in these big meetings or people are trying to make policy and it sounds so wonderful and everyone's clapping, you know, golf clapping and going completely berserk, oh, this is wonderful. I say, well, hang on a second. That doesn't make any sense. That's not how this works. Um, I'm kind of that person sort of stand, it's like the Columbo of neurosurgery. Like, well, I just have one more question. Um, so I, I, that's kind of me. And, and so you have to be that person. I think we all kind of have to have a little bit of Columbo in us because if we don't, we kind of end up in the same situation we've been in. And that's been essentially like, you know, I had to see, like, I had to sound like uh, the sky is falling, but we're really kind of being priced and pushed out of our own practices. And really, if you take a look at what's happening in England, where you have nurses and PAs doing actual surgery, um, please don't think that that's impossible. In our, in our country. And please don't think that it's not possible for somebody to be trained to do a micro disc without us in there. And I'll give you an example. There was a LinkedIn post recently where uh, some company had essentially designed a system that had pain doctors putting in pedicle screws. I kid you not. And they showed a scan. Uh, the patient had no spondylolisthesis, but they put some sort of contraption in. The pain doctor did basically put in pedicle screws. And um, to boot, he had an orthopedic surgeon who shall remain remain nameless um, help him put in these screws into the patient. And if you guys think that we are not really expendable, you know that we can't be replaced. Please, please think again. I mean, it was recent that uh, not too long ago they wanted to teach uh, trauma surgeons how to do burr holes. So you know, look, the bottom line is this: we have to advocate for ourselves and our patients. Otherwise, nobody else will. No one's coming to save us but us. So you have to be strong, you have to be erudite, and you got to be a loudmouth to say the status quo is not good enough for me and my patients. And I think we should all learn that, hopefully. 
Well, I appreciate all those points so much, Dr. Gantworker. I'm, I think, the only one in my residency, uh, at least among the residents, who takes the time to pay attention to uh, scope issues and uh, both between specialties and between level of practitioners. And a lot of that and a, a lot of my thinking about that has come from following you on social media. You're very active on X, and I love your posts and discussions there. You've been on a handful of podcasts uh, recently, including some of the uh, Becker podcasts. Scott Becker was on our show yeah. recently. And so I just really want to thank you for uh, being the loudmouth in the room, as you said. <laughs> um, but to, to bring things back down to my uh, uh, intellectual level, first of all, for everyone listening, please go watch Columbo. Great detective <laughs> show from the 70s starring Peter Falk, incredible character. Um, and even more important, I am truly impressed to have and anything at large on our show. I've always wanted to be a something at large. <laughs> um, Elvis was a federal agent at large yeah. for the narcotics uh, division back under Nixon. So that, yeah, that's that's like a lifetime goal of mine. So hats off to you for that. <laughs> but on a more serious note, um, we'll link to your social media and some of these other venues that you've been on so our listeners can find your uh, more serious and, and less comedic uh, content. Uh, <laughs> you got to say it with a smile. The intellectual level you either it. laugh or you cry. So that's, that's, uh, <laughs> I prefer to laugh. <laughs> exactly. But, but it's been really fun connecting with you and getting yeah. to have an actual conversation. Um, and I, I truly hope that we can have you back on in the near future. Maybe we can drill down a little bit more into your advocacy, uh, scope of practice issues, reimbursements and things like that. Um, but for now, just thank you so much for describing your practice and kind of the physician-owned private practice uh, experience in general in neurosurgery. Thank you very much, sir. It's my pleasure. Hopefully, I'll see you guys in Chicago. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.